What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott, and welcome, everybody, on this Friday. The sell-off is continuing today with the Dow uh, down almost 100 points right now. And stocks, in fact, are on pace for their worst weekly decline in eight weeks now. Why? Increasing China tensions, especially this morning. We'll talk more about that. Some weak economic data weighing on sentiment today. Take a look at oil, though. It's rallying, and it's nearing the $30 mark. The June contract expires on Tuesday, so we're going to expect a lot of volatility going into that. On the economic front, as mentioned, retail sales plunged 16% in April, way worse than expected. Industrial production also sinking down about 11%. There was a bright spot, though. Consumer sentiment surprisingly picked up in early May, came in better than expected. Uh, Gives us maybe some more insight into what the psyche of the consumer is right now. But let's get more on the psyche of these markets, and we go to Dom Chu for that. Dom? All right, so Kelly, let's put some numbers to those themes that you were just talking about in the opening. Now, take a look at the Dow, the S&P, and NASDAQ. It's been generally a negative session today, but we're hovering in the middle of that session. At the highs, the Dow Industrials were up 27 points. At the lows, they were down 271. On a percentage basis, the S&P 500 currently off just two-tenths of 1%. The NASDAQ barely in the green at this point. Now, take a look at the sectors because it's, again, a mixed picture. Materials, consumer staples, and energy, a mix of defensive and cyclical sectors leading the way higher. Meanwhile, you've got financials, real estate, and utilities, another mix really lagging so far today. Now, as for some of the stocks on the move today, we will talk about some of those themes you just mentioned. Check out shares of Qualcomm, those renewed tensions with China. Could there be retaliation? Could companies like Qualcomm, other chip stocks, be beneficiaries or or be hurt because of it. That's a big theme developing. Also, what's happening with Nordstrom, a reversal in retail stocks after the worst print for retail sales on record. So watch that. It could be fundamental buying or short covering. And then one last one here, McCormick, the spice maker, new all time high today. Just tells you how much people are staying at home and cooking at home with those spices. Back over to you, Kelly. What was your brand, Dom? Your favorite brand? So my father-in-law loves Penzi's spices. So between McCormick and Penzi's, we've got the spice rack covered in those two brands. Italian seasoning. That's my my new... I never knew. I never knew. I've also started an herb garden, and I'm going to get some tips from you, Kelly, after the show. Uh, If I could grow basil, anyone can. (laughs) Anyway, let's move on. Dom, thanks. The recovery rally is grinding to a halt, as you just outlined. The Dow and the S&P are down about 3% this week, while the Nasdaq is down about 2%. For more on all this, I'm joined by Jason Trenner, the chairman and CEO of Strategus Research Partners, and Bob Michael is head of global fixed income strategy for J.P. Morgan Asset Management. It's great to have you both here. Jason, I'll just start with you because you're, you're saying there's there's five things really that could cause a sell-off from here, and a couple of them certainly grabbed my attention. Run through them if you don't mind real quickly. Well, listen, I think the, the most important one over time is just simply time. Uh, and I think one of the things we've, we've looked at when we've talked to our clients is that there's been this difference, obviously, between the performance of the economy and uh, the markets. And um, I understand people's um, hesitancy uh, there, but uh, by the same token, uh, you usually don't have bear markets, in my opinion, that are associated with recessions that only last one month. <laughs> and uh, that's what we saw from February into March. So th- the most important one of the five 
would be would be time. Then you have things like political wrangling, negative interest rates. Those would be some of the other things that we would look at that, in my opinion, could set uh, or you know set a, a, about a catalyst for sure. a, de- a, a new decline in the market. Right. So we're sitting on the on the health front. You know, political wrangling over stimulus. I, I get those too. But you also say the return of corporate guidance could cause a market sell-off. Negative interest rates, as you said, I'd like to hear why you think that would cause a, a market sell-off and a Democratic sweep come November. You don't have to get too political about it. But what is it in particular about guidance and rates uh, that you're concerned about? Well, I think as far as guidance is concerned, right now, you know, this is it's usually a little bit of art and science coming up with an earnings number as a strategist. And right now it's like modern art, you know, or abstract <laughs> art, because you, you have no there's no idea. You have nothing to, uh, to go on. I think um, in some ways people are giving companies as a result the benefit of the doubt and and thinking that things are going to get better as the economy reopens, which is is quite is almost inevitable. Whether it's sustainable is another question. I think if people start, if, if companies really start making longer-term guidance that says, no, this is the real thing, this is going to take us some time to get through, that could be a problem. Negative rates, in my opinion, have been tried in Europe and Japan and have largely been a disaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it, there are benefits to it, but most of the benefits are, are greatly outweighed uh, by its negative impact on the banking system, which is really the oxygen upon which most uh, most economies breathe. So um, I, I think that would be a bad idea. I think the Fed's done all that it can do, or it may do a little bit more in terms of expanding the balance sheet, but negative interest rates, in my opinion, would be a bridge too far. Well, let's bring in Bob on that very point. Um, Bob, of all the questions I thought you were going to be reflecting, is the bond market dead was not the main one. What made that kind of come up in conversation with clients in, in terms of what you see happening in the market? And, and what do we need to be concerned about? Well, I think that a lot of clients are concerned that as the central banks are buying greater and greater parts of the bond markets, it starts with government bonds in the U.S. It's gone to agency mortgages. In Europe, it's gone to corporates. It's now corporates uh, in the U.S. There's a sense that they're squeezing out the potential bond investor and bringing yields down to an abnormally low level. I think what they're forgetting is we're going to see an extreme amount of issuance. We're going to see trillions of dollars of government debt. Already this year, we've seen a trillion dollars of corporate debt issued. There's going to be plenty for everyone to buy, and you have to think of it as co-investing with the Fed to help the recovery along. Yeah, it's a point in terms of whether those purchases would kind of crowd out the private sector, so to speak, that some of the bears have emphasized, I believe Stan Druckenmiller might be one of them, uh, kind of concerned about where all of this borrowing and, and buying is going. Um, it's interesting, too, the people who worried about rates being artificially low when it sounds like they're trying to kind of continue to push them lower. Maybe putting all of that aside, um, what's your point of view on how low rates can go? I mean, does the Fed even need to go negative in order for large parts of the Treasury curve to go negative, corporate borrowing to go negative. We've certainly seen, uh, you know, people even issuing debt at negative rates, uh, European issuers and so forth. We've seen that already. Well, I know last July when I said I expected the 10-year Treasury to go to zero, you thought I was crazy. (laughs) Let, Let me tell you that when I heard Jay Powell talk about negative rates and he said, not for now, that for now even caused me to gasp. Really? Because once you fall into that negative hole, nobody's been able to get out. No economy in Europe and certainly not in Japan. So 
I hope they stay at zero. They need to create an affordable funding environment for all levels of government, for all businesses, and for households to be able to finance themselves. I think Jay Powell called it a bridge uh, for now. And I think the Fed has shown from 2015 to 2018 that they can normalize policy when the time is appropriate. So in other words, Bob, you heard him say not now and, and also read that as many did as saying, hey, the door is open. Let me just ask you for those who say, well, you work at J.P. Morgan. Of course, you don't want negative rates. Explain why that would be bad for the whole public, not just for the big banks. Well, it, it's bad for savers. And, and there are so many savers in the economy that have money on deposit. If you look at money market assets, they keep setting a record high every day. Um, so uh, if you take rates to negative, do you just cap people off at zero? And if you take rates to negative, then you're going to bring bond market yields down towards zero and negative as well. So you tend to penalize savers quite a bit. And we know there are about 10,000 retirees, new retirees every day in the U.S. who need some form of fixed income. Yeah. Positive fixed income. Right, exactly. Not negative fixed income. Jason, I'll just give you the final word uh, here to kind of bring this back to the stock market. You guys have moved your investments uh, kind of away from cyclicals, more into technology and communications. And when I saw that, I just wondered about if you're you know, chasing the, the consensus, so to speak. Well, <laughs> there may be a sense in which we're doing that, but I also think it has a lot to do with the length of time. I think it, it will take for us to get back to the level of economic activity. It really has a lot to do with what I see as the, the shape of the recovery, uh, which is to say, I think growth is going to be impaired for a long period of time. I think the black swan wasn't necessarily the virus. It was the lockdown. We've done a lot of damage to the economy that will take a long time to repair. And I think in that environment, uh, people are going to pay up for growth stocks. And I came into this year, I have to say, very bullish on, on cyclicals and value oriented stocks. And that was largely because I thought with the trade war dormant, you would have a stronger year for global growth. Mm. And, you know, we'll never know whether that would have been correct or not because of the, of the virus and the lockdown. But as it stands now, I think, again, unfortunately, I think this will take some time to, to repair. Uh, and uh, as a result, I want to be more, uh, um, more in the uh, growth orientation as it stands now. Understood. Great chat, guys. Thank you both. Appreciate it. Jason Chenard and Bob Michael joining me today. We have some breaking news out of the oil patch. And remember, uh, WTI had been pretty, you know, rallying pretty nicely today, but the rig counts are out for the week. Brian Sullivan has the numbers. Brian? I'll tell you what hasn't been rallying, Kelly, and that is the number of drilling rigs. They fell again. Oil drilling rigs, according to Baker Hughes, dropping another 34. We're at like 285 now on the oil rig side, 300 and change for total rigs. That includes gas and offshore I can't express to you the significance, Kelly, of the rapidity of the drop in new drilling rigs. You go back to 2010, I just did before coming on air. We were at 1,400. Now we're at a couple hundred, and that's because of this. Look at that. These are fracking operations as measured by Rystad Energy. In January, everything's humming. The economy's going great. 1,158 operations for new fracked wells. It went up in February, March, eh, we start to fall. April dropped off. Look at that. So far in May, Kelly, according to Rystad Energy, we're at 92, down from 1158. Now, these, listen, these are jobs as well, and I think that's key. It goes to industrial production. You're not drilling a well. You don't need the well pipe. You don't need the workers. You don't need the support crews. You don't need the truck drivers as well. So the rig counts, 
dropping. In fact, I'm trying to find a lower number. I'm kind of rapidly going through the spreadsheets back years. And right now, I can't. This could be nearly at least a multi-decade low for the number of operational rigs, Kelly. And it's, so just to be clear, you're saying we had like 1,400 back in 2010 and 92 last month. Is that new wells or that's just any well in operation? I mean, that's a staggering decline. Well, well, 92 is the number of fracked operations, the number of sort of different things, not just wells, the number of companies that are drilling wells and whatever sort of process. Yeah, you can go back to 14, 1500 back in 2010 when oil was coming off that peak. Of course, that's probably the problem. That's how we got the 13 million barrels a day. That's how we're having some issues now with production. I will say this. You wonder what's going on. If we look at the multi-month contracts, we're pretty much I'm going to get a little fancy for you, Kelly, and I apologize. I'm going to say something I thought I'd never say on TV. It's backwardation, okay? That's not that That's fancy. That's the opposite of... Con- uh, thank you. Good. That's the, the FCC is not getting involved. That's the opposite of contango. That means prices today in the future actually went lower than the current price. That's really bad news if you paid a couple million dollars to store your oil offshore. Demand has been up. People are driving again. Production down 17 million barrels a day globally, according to OPEC. That's why prices have firmed up. No backwardation from Brian Sullivan. Thank you, sir. We appreciate it. Oh, oh, by the way, by, can I jump in? One, one quick thing. Sure. I heard your comment with Dom. Best hot sauce in America. I have no affiliation with it. Secret Aardvark out of Portland, Oregon. Don't know the guys. Whoever they are, they're amazing. Check it out. All right, we're going to collect these tips all show. (laughs) Brian, thanks very much. Coming up, we're going to take a quick break first, though, and talk about MasterCard when we come back. They say we're moving into the normalization phase of credit card use. Is now the time to buy the sector? We'll debate that. Plus, 23andMe is working to find out why some people are getting sicker than others when it comes to COVID-19. The CEO joins us with a look at how they're figuring this out and the progress they've made so far. Much more coming up on The Exchange. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back. Credit card stock staged a big rally this week when MasterCard says it's seen a slight rebound in credit card use over the past two weeks, in part due to the reopening of several states. But even if the worst is behind us, what does the new normal look like for consumer spending and for these stocks? For more, I'm joined by Lisa Ellis, a partner at Moffitt Nathanson, and Chris Donat, who is senior analyst at Piper Sandler. Great to have you both back and, and to check in. Chris, I actually want to start with you and the optimism you see on shares of American Express. It's interesting to me that Amex is still down 30 percent on a one-year basis. But Visa and MasterCard are actually up about 11 percent. So what is it about Amex to you, which I think would be really, really hit by the drop in travel and corporate expenses um, that has you attracted here? Yeah, so you're right. There is a, a hit to Amex from a, a drop in what they call you know, T&E, travel and entertainment, it represents about 20 percent of the spending for them. What I think uh, is an offset to that one or, or diminishes sort of the impact is the amount of revenue that American Express generates from the the transactional part of the card business. It's only about half of the revenue for the total company. They're still going to make money on net interest income and card fees and a bunch of other sources that are much more 
more steady. So yes, there's a hit, but I think it's relatively small. And at this point, we're guardedly optimistic about how credit quality will perform them for them. There's a little, there's a lot of noise actually around the the new Cecil accounting standard and what that means for near-term earnings. But um, but anyway, I think for the out out year forecast, you can have some optimism that the credit quality issues will stabilize and the amount of provisioning they will have will stabilize too. Yeah. And I know you're still bearish on MasterCard, you know, still concerned about a lot of that cross-border activity that they're losing neutral on Visa. Uh, Lisa, you're more constructive on those names and especially on PayPal. And and here's my question. Um, So many people emphasize PayPal winning in online commerce, but it uses, I mean, certainly my user experience now is it uses Visa and MasterCard. You know, I know there's ways around it, but I wonder if most, so are they all just winning together now? I mean, can you explain a little bit how this trade works? Yeah, sure. Yeah, they are all winning together. So you're right. Um, The majority of transactions through PayPal are funded by a card. And so uh, but but PayPal is making a spread on those transactions as well, um, as are the card networks. So they all benefit. Um, the, the difference there is that PayPal is all e-commerce, um, which, of course, is seeing an enormous secular uptick uh, as a result of the pandemic with people all sheltering in place. Um, their numbers were the biggest positive surprise, in our view, out of the whole earnings cycle these last few weeks. Hmm. For example, they posted 43% growth in their checkout volumes uh, in April. That's more than double the rate in February. Um, so you're starting to see this really sharp uptake in uh, e-commerce volumes as people are buying more things online. It's amazing. I can't even stay logged in. I mean, I, I try to use PayPal and Venmo, and I always get kicked out. Chris, <laughs> what about the, the levels of consumer spending? What is the new normal you think going to look like? So understandably, we're starting to come back, uh, starting the normalization process. But But where are we going? Yeah, I, I think the new normal is certainly going to be lower than where we were. And some of my, my colleagues at Piper Sandler have done some nice work with doing consumer surveys, and you're showing consumers are cautious in what, what they're thinking about spending. So I think you'll see some some help um, in the United States from the stimulus checks, but you have to ask yourself, what does the spending environment look like after the stimulus checks? Uh, when people are, you know, if, if unemployment is still elevated, People are going to, I think, be kind of cautious on their spending, which which does weigh on overall spending activity on Visa and MasterCard and, and everyone else in the payment sector. At least I'll give you the final response to that. You know, PayPal as well is a stock that is up 30 percent on the year. So certainly it hasn't suffered during the pandemic. Um, but how how much do you think people are pricing in whether for them, for the traditional cards, uh, a, a V-shaped recovery, a swoosh? I mean, what, what's in the cards right now? Yeah, I, right now I'd say that the, as much as it's clearly completely uncertain and no one really knows, at this point it's more of the swoosh style, sort of slow, steady improvement. I mean, we saw MasterCard's new numbers they just released yesterday for the for May, and the U.S. numbers are at least looking a lot better. U.S. is currently running down six year to year uh, in the beginning of May. Just to put a reference point on that, it was down almost 20 in April Um, And if it gets back to about zero, that's about where we were in the financial crisis. So just if if folks that, you know, are are kind of trying to make sense of what to think about these numbers, what we're aiming for is we'd ideally at least like to get back to a flat year on year number that's comparable to 09, 2010. That's certainly what we've got baked into our outlooks 
for Visa, MasterCard, PayPal. Anything better than that would be upside. Um, and I think, uh, you know, that's kind of what we're hoping for. And honestly, that's negative six number already in May was a positive surprise yesterday from yeah, MasterCard. But still, I mean, to hear that zero is only, you know, getting us back to, to 0809. It's really interesting. Thank you both. It's good to check in again. Appreciate it. Thanks, Lisa Ellis and Chris Donat talking about the card stocks and about spending overall. Coming up, maybe it's in the genes. 23andMe is recruiting more patients as it expands its DNA study to see why some are at greater risk for COVID-19 than others. We're going to speak with the CEO about that next. Plus, Washington wants socially distant airplanes. Great for passengers, but could the airlines survive under these new rules? We'll break that down. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in a couple. For the next 15 seconds, picture yourself in a small town. Historic buildings with galleries, restaurants, micro distilleries. Forested ridgelines on the horizon. Wide alpine meadows. Evergreen forests threaded with trails. Friendly locals eager to guide you. And if you're not quite ready to leave this fantasy, chances are you're our kind. And you should check out visitparkcity.com right away. Park City, Utah. For the mountain kind. Travel is great, but planning for travel can be time consuming and difficult. That's where One Travel comes in. With One Travel, you'll find everything you need to book the perfect trip flights, hotels, cars, transportation. It's all right there. With One Travel, you can book online, via app, or even pick up the phone and talk to a travel advisor ready to help you make your selections. Visit onetravel.com/slash music or call 855-437-2154. Plan it. Book it, live it, one travel. Welcome back. Now to the very latest in the coronavirus pandemic. Over to Sue Herrera for that. Sue? Thank you very much, Kelly. Good afternoon, everyone. As some parts of New York begin reopening today, Governor Andrew Cuomo is extending restrictions for the rest of that state until May 28th. He also announced four states are coordinating efforts to let people back on the beach. The agreement is New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Delaware will all be opening beaches for the Memorial Day weekend. Uh, states will have different specific rules about what happens on that beach. They'll all be plus or minus, but they're all basically in the same ballpark. The Navy hospital ship USNS Mercy has left Los Angeles today, though 60 medical staff will remain in that area to help at local nursing facilities. The ship was sent to Los Angeles in late March to help treat non-coronavirus patients, although only ended up treating 77 patients. As always, you can get more on our coronavirus coverage by going to CNBC.com. Kelly, back to you. All right, Sue, thanks very much. There's still so much we don't know about COVID-19, including what role genetics may be playing and how severely someone gets infected. Meg Terrell joins me now with more on that and a special guest. Meg? Hey, Kelly. Well, there are some things we do know about the risk of severe disease with COVID-19. Of course, that it increases with age and with underlying conditions. But there are also instances where it seems to strike people who are seemingly very healthy and young. For example, NBC contributor Dr. Joseph Fair, who tweeted a photo this week of his recovery from COVID-19. Uh, and in a story about him, NBC reports he's a seemingly healthy 42-year-old who's running 5 to 10 miles a day. And still, uh, there he is in recovery at the hospital. So a lot of groups are looking into what might be driving that, why some people are asymptomatic and others are hit so hard. And they think genetics may play a role. 23andMe 
is one of those groups. They started a study uh, and now have enrolled more than 500,000 people, 7,000 of whom um, have had COVID-19. And this week, they extended that study to try to focus specifically on people who've been hospitalized with COVID-19. And they're giving away 10,000 free test kits, uh, the genetic test kits, that is, uh, to try to enroll those folks. So joining us now to talk about that effort is 23andMe CEO Ann Wojcicki. And it's great to see you. Thanks for being with us. Tell us about this test. And you started it about a month ago. You're expanding it now. When do you expect to um, to get results? Yeah, we started it April 6th and we offered just to 23 Me customers to say, have you, um, you know, if you've been exposed or if you want to take the survey to, to take the 23 Me COVID-19 survey, we got half a million people to actually fill out that survey Almost 8,000 people now actually have said that they have had COVID-19. And because we were rushing to see, can we make a discovery, we decided yesterday, a couple days ago, that we wanted to give out 10,000 kits to anyone who said that they've been hospitalized with COVID-19. And we're really looking to see, are there genetics about susceptibility, so why some people are getting it, and severity. Some people are just super sick. And we're hoping to see, can we find something and can we find something quickly? And in your announcement about the, the study, you mentioned that previous studies have shown that there is some uh, interplay of genetics in terms of susceptibility for other infectious diseases. Um, tell us about just what the precedent is for seeing the genetics uh, role in these kinds of things and whether we've seen studies that have shown any uh, influence of genetics on the severity of infectious disease. Yeah, we actually, there's there's a couple um, that are good examples. So norovirus is one where um, you hear about that sometimes, the cruise ship virus, where there's roughly 20% of the population actually is resistant to that. Um, HIV is another one where there's a well-known mutation called um, CCR5, and people who have that mutation are actually resistant to HIV. So we published a paper, we, we started doing research on infectious diseases. We published a paper a couple of years ago actually looking at um, you know, our customers and a number of diseases like measles. And it gives us optimism that we actually have a good chance of finding something that you know, will show why some people have a more severe case and why some people are more susceptible than others. You also noted in your uh, post about um, expanding the study to folks who are in the hospital that, of course, it is a sensitive situation and many people are still recovering. Um, how are you handling that kind of outreach? Are you partnering with academic medical centers, with hospitals? How will you find these folks and get the kits to them? A lot of what we're hoping, because you're right, a lot of people are going to be in the hospital. So we're hoping that family members will be able to, um, you know, take advantage of this and then find, you know, when people are out of the hospital, that then they'll be able to help them enroll. Um, we're absolutely interested in partnering with hospitals and academic centers, pretty much anyone who can actually help find the answers here. I feel like this is really, um, in, in some ways, like this is something that has pulled together the entire scientific community. And there's a lot of collaboration happening right now. And we want to just do whatever we can to help. So a couple academic groups have reached out to us, um, you know, some of the, the, the cities with real hotspots. So, for instance, New York, um, there's a number of sequencing programs underway. We are committed to publishing our data and, and collaborating with any other group that's out there that wants to be able to pull data together to see, you know, can we find something?
And you clearly have a lot of participants already. You know, 500,000 people have opted in. Um, but we have been hearing over the past few quarters, you know, from companies like Illumina, which provide the sequencers that do the sequencing, that direct-to-consumer genetics has uh, kind of been on the the down, a downturn. A fewer people are are getting these kits. Is that something you've observed? Uh, what are the most recent trends on how interested people are in this? A couple interesting things have happened. There was absolutely a um, you know a slowing of the market compared to. 2018, um, you know, 17 and 18, you have this explosion where people were just so interested in their genetics and, and rushing. And I think that you had a number of different factors that played in last year where people want to understand privacy and just understand how their information is being used. And so we've always been um, very transparent with our customers. And it's always been a big priority for us to make sure people know um, exactly what they are getting and that they have this opportunity to opt in to research or opt into DNA relatives. So what we've seen since COVID-19 is that there was an initial, um, you know, hit to sales, but it's really come back. And I think that comes from the fact that people realize we're likely to be home for a while. Um, the medical system has has changed. You're not running into the, the doctor's office for routine care. And that it's really important to understand how you can take care of yourself at home. And a good part of what 23andMe does is it gives people information about risks. So what is it that's in your DNA that you're potentially at higher risk for, something like type 2 diabetes? And now is there an opportunity for you to change your behavior and, and actually change um, you know, and prevent a disease. And I think you see a lot of people these days who are interested, more interested than they were in the past in preventing a disease right. because they want to really stay out of the hospital for good reason. Yeah, medicine sure is changing with this. Anne Wojcicki, thank you so much for being with us today. We're eager to hear about the results of your study. Kelly, back to you. And Meg, thank you. Really appreciate it. Great to hear from her and Wojcicki. Coming up, 16 office towers with 10 million square feet. That's just a sampling of how much real estate Rudin Management has under its belt. We're going to speak with the CEO, Bill Rudin, about the state of the market and what the office building of the future will look like right after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. A quick check on the markets right now. We're way off the lows when the Dow is down 270 points. It's only down 38 right now. The S&P is down three points, and the Nasdaq is positive by 11. Remember, this is still against the backdrop of a pretty rough week, the worst in a few months. Here's your sectors. Leading the way today are consumer staples and materials, interestingly. Uh, utilities and real estate are the laggards. Utility uh, just can't, uh, real estate, I should say, just can't catch a break these days. And speaking of which, it's 10 million square feet, 18 luxury apartment buildings, and 16 office towers. That's just some of the properties that our next guest manages in New York. As areas of the state begin to open, how will commercial buildings make their tenants feel safe? And how different will the office tower be after this pandemic? For more on the path forward for real estate, I'm joined by Bill Rudin. He is the CEO of Rudin Management. Bill, it's great I'm to have Kelly. you. Welcome. Thank, thanks, Kelly. Thanks for having me on. Must be a very, very anxious time for you. Well, it's been, uh, yes, it's been very interesting. And but it's this, uh, you know, you mentioned the, the state, New York State, starting to reopen the governor. Uh, is, is, is slowly opening the door. Uh, he's done an amazing job in communicating and making sure we get through uh, this, this very difficult period of time. And, you know, obviously we've been working 
on all levels of government, uh, trying to be as helpful as we can to make sure that when New York City starts to reopen, that our customers and our tenants are safe and they feel comfortable right. coming back into the work environment. And we'll talk about some of the technology in particular that you and others are going to be using. But I want to talk big picture for a moment. You know, Nielsen is one of the companies who has said, and this was in the New York Times the other day, that even after coronavirus, there are 3,000 workers in the city no longer need to be the office full time, can work from home most of the week. And their larger point was that Manhattan faces a reckoning if working from home becomes the norm. Um, you know, there is a, a sea change. Even just yesterday, the CEO of Scott's Miracle Grow said, yeah, I used to commute from New York to Ohio every day. I'm not going to be doing that anymore. Um, what happens if, if people's behaviors change and they don't need as much commercial space as they, as they used to? Well, first of all, you had your just your guest on before about uh, research and science. And I think there's been reports about vaccines uh, coming on the market sooner rather than later, which is a very helpful sign, therapies. So uh, it, it, is, it, it, it is people working from home has adapted very quickly. But I think uh, New York City has always come back from these type of situations in the early 90s. We had 30 million feet of vacant space in lower Manhattan. Everybody said it wasn't going to come back. After 9-11, nobody was going to come back into an office building. Uh, even, you know, uh, everyone was going to work below the 15th floor uh, after Sandy. So, you know, the obituary of New York has been written many times. Uh, but, you know, we're confident with uh, proper protocols, uh, you know, great leadership from our mayor and our governor uh, and the social uh you know, human interaction that has mm -hmm. always been part of the strength of New York City uh, will come back. It's going to take a little time after all these other uh, uh, situations, but it will come back. And uh, there will be other companies that will step into the void mm -hmm. uh, as some companies continue to work from home. Uh, we've got uh, incredible research hospitals. We've got scientists. We've got uh, medical institutions. They're going to grow. Uh, other companies will step in. Uh, and use technology to be creative and be the companies of the future that we hope will fill in our spaces. Yeah. So let's talk. Uh, speaking of technology, there's several things you guys are doing to kind of get through the next three to six to 12 to maybe 24 months. Uh, you have a tech startup subsidiary. You have a Nantum building operating system that tracks uh, indoor air quality metrics, temperatures. Uh, you can expand it to things related to health and wellness. You have an app that provides situational awareness, so to speak, to tenants so they can see how crowded spaces like the lobby and uh, other rooms are. Are there waiting lines to the elevators? You know, it reminds me of the SimCity game I played as a kid. Well, my, 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 my son, who's, uh, who's uh, 35 years old, he, he grew up on SimCity also. But uh, you're, I'm going to hire you as our salesperson because you, 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 you pitched it perfectly. Uh, we started this uh, uh, prescriptive data a few years ago to make our buildings more uh, environmentally friendly, uh, more operationally functional. It gives real-time da data to our uh, building operations team. And so uh, trying to create this app and give our tenants real-time data, data is a continuum of, of, of this technology. Yeah. So uh, we've been working on this for a while. Uh, we, we understand how many people are in the building, what the CO2 levels are, what water consumption, electrical consumption is. So it's really the building operating system of the future. And we've, uh, we, we've been uh, licensing it to other 
uh, building owners sure. and corporations uh, literally all over the country. Could be a whole new business model. No, I mean, frankly, I find it on some level kind of creepy, but I understand that, you know, people want, you know, as long as it's anonymized, I guess that, you know, it's useful information to have. Real, real quickly, Bill, before you go, Danny Meyer has been talking about um, not reopening his restaurants because the, the level of demand is simply not coming back in the foreseeable future. Does, does something like that send more of a chill down your spine, the sense that, you know, hey, these are the big players that should be stepping up right now? Well, I, I, look, Danny is, 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 a, is, a, is a great friend. Actually, we're, we're, we're having him operate our, uh, our food service in our new building in Brooklyn at Doc 72. But I think it's, it's really, uh, you know, it's been a lot of discussion about state and city funding. And I think the House today, hopefully, or Monday will pass uh, their COVID-4 stimulus bill, which has over $750 billion, that's with a B, dollars for cities and states all over the country. It's just not about New York. We, we're, uh, New York State is 8% of the GDP. New York City is 5%. So we need, not just us, but every city across the country needs that stimulus dollars to get uh, funneled back into mm-hmm. the city. We've taken tremendous hits on city revenues, transfer tax, income tax. So we need the, that revenue yeah. to, to get back in there and support uh, our, 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 our basic functions. And I think... Uh, you know, restaurants, a, a local restaurant that uh, my wife and I go to, uh, there I spoke to the owner and he said, you know, I said, how are you going to adapt to the 30%? He goes, I'm going to have a seating at five. I'm going to have a seating at six. I'm going to have a seating at seven and a seating at, at eight. So we have to adapt wow. and make changes and hopefully uh, we'll transition through, get to the point where the vaccines yeah. and therapies are out there and the city will be back better and stronger. My dad always said, never bet against New York City. So we're that's, continuing that. That's so. for sure. That's for sure. No, I abs- I know exactly what you're saying. Bill, thanks for joining me today and good luck with it. Please keep us posted. Thanks, Kelly. Bill Rudin is the CEO of Rudin Management. Got some 13F headlines out right now from Tiger Global. Dom Chu has those for us, Dom. All right, the notable tech-oriented hedge fund founded by Chase Coleman, one of the Tiger Cubs, so to speak. Uh, some interesting highlights here include a new stake in online exercise and streaming equipment maker Peloton, a new stake there. Also, uh, a decrease in their stake in Uber by over by just around 54 percent. So possibly some coronavirus related plays there. Also, a large increase in shares of Salesforce on the cloud side of things, as well as a total sellout of Slack and massive increases in shares of Workday and Datadog. So, again, on that software kind of cloud play type situation as well, we're seeing some of those play out. Also checking out what's happening else with other parts of the market, but we'll continue to dig through these, Kelly, but some big deals. And remember, Kelly, these are as of the end of March, so there's a big data lag here on these particular numbers. Back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you. Dominic Chu. Still ahead, the chip stocks are getting hit as U.S. tensions with China flare, this time with the administration blocking shipments of semiconductors to Huawei. What's at stake in this battle is next here on The Exchange.
Welcome back. Take a look at the semiconductors today. The ETF tracking them down about 3% right now. And on pace for its worst week since mid-March, the White House is looking to cut Huawei off from its U.S. chip suppliers, which includes Xilinx, NVIDIA, and Intel. The U.S. is also now bracing for possible retaliation from China by activating its unreliable entity list. Now, this comes as Taiwan Semiconductor, an Apple supplier, has just announced plans to build a $12 billion plant here in the U.S. Let's talk about all of it and the impact on the industry with John Fort. John, a, a lot to kind of unpack here and some fast-moving developments. The one yeah. thing, the impression that I came away with in, in reading this is that while I understand the imperative to get um, you know, some of the semiconductor supply chain into the U.S., it sounds like the U.S. semiconductor companies feel like they might be at a disadvantage competitively. I mean, can you unpackage all of this? Well, where should we start? You're absolutely right. These two headlines are kind of at odds with one another because uh, a fab, uh, a chip manufacturing plant, is unique in that it costs billions and billions of dollars to make. It takes years to make one, and pretty much as soon as you build it, it's almost obsolete, right? They're building, TSMC is building this one in in Arizona on the five nanometer process. By the time this is built uh, around 2024, they're estimating, they'll probably be pretty close to moving to, to even uh, more advanced processes. So when you're building something like this, you really want stability. You want regulatory stability. You want uh, a tax runway that you can really see and understand. And you want to be able to export the product in there anywhere in the world because assembly really could happen anywhere. You don't know exactly necessarily who your customer is going to be in four years. Well, the, the regulatory things that the U.S. is talking about with Huawei right now, which is the biggest customer in one of the fastest uh, growing economies on the planet, that, that works against the certainty that TSMC would want. So you have to wonder what kind of guarantees or incentives they got to commit to building this. Let me kind of ask it from this point of view. What does this all mean for Intel? Now, Intel had just said it was potentially working on having a a plant here in the U.S., maybe one to supply the Pentagon. So I see the big picture. It's moved more of the chip supply chain into the U.S. and put, you know, maybe lessen its reliance on China in particular. Um, But what's it all mean for Intel? Well, Intel already has, by my count, around 11 chip fabs in the U.S., four already in Arizona. So it's not as if Intel is new to this game. I think the question is more, will the incentive picture change for Intel to expand what it has already or build new in the U.S.? And I think part of that is the regulatory picture. Who gets exceptions from some of the regula- uh, regulations that are coming out? Uh, wh- what kind of certainty can the government provide to individual companies, even if they're trying to provide some barriers or, or negotiating room with China? Right, exactly. No, it's tricky. Um, again, we, a lot of big picture stuff underway here, but the stock's obviously reacting a little bit concerned about it. Yeah. John, thanks. Uh, we appreciate it. John Fort with the latest today. Meanwhile, nearly a third of U.S. colleges and universities are at least considering keeping most of their classes online this fall. Those are the latest figures from the Chronicle of Higher Education. That has lots of students and their families rethinking things as well. Some are even going to court. Scott Cohn is live with more. Scott. Hi, Kelly. We are at San Jose State University. There's my Spartan Blue. This is one of the 23 Cal State campuses that have just announced that they will stay basically virtual for the fall, but no break in the tuition. And the university is even refusing to refund some fees for things like the student center and health care. That is infuriating to some students like Sonoma State biology major Michaela Miller, who says she's out about $1,000. It's not fair for them to treat us like this. We signed a contract 
that said we would pay if they would provide us with certain services and they're not holding up their end. So Miller has joined a proposed class action suit. The university says it's still providing services, albeit some of them remotely, and it will vigorously defend the case. Similar story in Florida at the University of Florida where Anthony Rojas is a grad student. The idea behind it is if you are going to charge someone for physical service, you no longer can provide it. We believe that students should get a refund. But the university president says that is not exactly the point. Granted, many of them didn't have the full access to those student services. But uh, the, the, what we did was uh, commit to the students that they would, we would provide for them uh, a rich experience with additional expenses that we took on uh, through the online experience. Now, there is also a separate group of lawsuits that is actually asking universities to give back some of the tuition to make up for the switch to online learning. But some legal experts say those may be a little tougher to prove. Kelly? Scott, I'm surprised that so many are still trying to have virtual classes. It seems like they might be setting themselves way back if they do. That college, that a lot of students, from what I hear anecdotally, are either going to defer or go to some place that is open. That's right. I mean, there, there is a lot of interest in this whole idea of a gap year. There's actually a group called the Gap Year Association. They say that their web traffic uh, in recent weeks has quadrupled. And there's some talk that there's about 40,000 or so students took a gap year this year. It could be uh, hundreds of thousands next year. And that increases the financial uncertainty for all of these colleges and universities. Absolutely does. Scott, thanks very much. Our Scott Cohn. Still ahead, Congress wants to do away with the middle seat. But setting up truly social distant airplanes could be devastating for the industry. We're going to dig into the numbers next. Coming up on Power Lunch, chef and restaurateur Tim Love is back. He'll have his outlook for restaurants as his spots in Texas have been open for two weeks now with some surprising results. Don't miss it. Welcome back. The pain keeps coming for the airline stocks. This week alone, shares of United and Delta are down double digits again, and American and Southwest are close behind. This is on top of huge losses for the year. And now there's a fight between the travel industry and Washington over whether or not they can mandate airlines to operate at 60 percent capacity. That would basically push the airlines to keep the middle seat open, something customers and Congress want. But is it feasible? Let's ask Seth Kaplan. He's airline analyst and principal with Kaplan Research. And our own Philip Bowe is here as well. Uh, Seth, I'll start with you. And congrats on, on Kaplan Research. Uh, I, I mean, you do a podcast with Ben Baldanza that airlines come. That, that, you're a very busy man. Uh, you know this, this through and through, uh, just like Phil here. So what do you think? I mean, can they be mandated to, to cut back? And, and why wouldn't they have to if that's simply what the flyers want? Yeah, and Kelly, you're right. I never imagined that airlines would practically stop flying and there would be so much to talk about, right? But the, the issue here is that one of the strongest relationships in all of airline economics is the relationship between how many seats you pack on the plane and the unit cost, the cost of carrying each seat, each mile. And for all of the more noticed things that airlines have done in recent years to cut costs, really one of the less sexy but most important ones they've done is pack those seats on the plane. And then there's a relationship, obviously, between their costs and airfares. So if you're basically going to force them to reduce capacity, you're going to push their costs up and push the cost of flying up. So then it basically becomes a value judgment, right? Uh, you know, we can't have people six feet apart from each other on an airplane. Is 18 inches better than nothing at all? 
I don't know. Yeah, I'd probably rather have 18 inches rather than nothing at all. I'd probably rather have 100 people on a plane instead of 150. But am I willing to pay as much more as it would cost to do that? Different people have different answers. Well, and Phil, it means that the people, you know, at the bottom of the income chain are going to drop out. So in other words, it's making flying more expensive, uh, it, it making it more of a luxury, you know, product again. And I guess I go back to whether or not it's mandated. Is the idea that we have to protect flyers from themselves, that people would go ahead and pack on these planes if Congress doesn't mandate this? Uh, that is partially the idea, Kelly. Look, People will continue to fly. More people will. And as that happens, will we be back to the levels we were last year? Let me show you a typical 737. Last year, 84.4% of the seats on a typical 737 were filled. So you had a smattering of empty seats on most flights. This is what Representative Peter DeFazio, who runs the Transportation Committee, is proposing. He says, do not book the middle row. The airline should not do that. And they should limit capacity to 67% of the seats being filled. By the way, that means you'd get about 18 inches of uh, elbow room with the person next to you. That's not socially distant. Exactly. And there are even a few people who are saying, hey, it should be true social distancing on a plane. Let me give you some perspective on what that would mean. On a typical 737, you might get 20 passengers in economy and four in business class. That is an unsustainable business model, would never fly in the industry. Airlines would say, no, we'll go bankrupt before we do that. It's not that they don't care about the safety of passengers. It's that this is an industry that is built on the idea you put as many people on the plane as possible. You need that volume in order to turn a profit. Right. And I guess, Seth, I'm interested in what this is telling us about how we're actually all responding to coronavirus. The idea, as Phil said, if you can really only fit 20 people on a plane with social distancing and they're all using recycled air anyway, I mean, the very act of getting on a plane is a is a pretty risky one. So it, it seems that we're, the message is either people want to take that risk but should be discouraged from doing so. Um, you know, I'm just trying to understand what, you know, kind of ha- it seems to all be coming down to the airlines, but there's a, a lot of different a lot of different things going on here. Yeah, airlines, look, airplanes and airports were not designed for social distancing, were they? And yeah, with the lack of sort of national guidance, with a lot of things right now, uh, but, but certainly this, uh, it is up to the airlines. We've seen them struggle with, you know, implementing mandatory masks and temperature checks and, and all the rest of it, and all of them come to different conclusions in some cases. But yeah, it, it, as Phil said, that math would take us way back in time, you know, to where flying would be a privilege. And I think we are at a point here where just at some at some point here where the very most vulnerable people are just going to have to stay home, unfortunately, as the country begins to open up. And, you know, whether it would be safe for them to be on an airplane anyway, even at any price, a, a, a question. And if you can't answer that question, then you're trading that for the certainty of right. higher fares for everyone else. I feel I guess that's what I'm saying is I wonder if this is all just an exercise in making ourselves feel like we're doing something that is neither true social distancing nor barring airlines from flying. Well, I think you're right, Kelly. And look, these airlines, they need to put as many people on these planes as possible. And so if you force them to keep the middle seat open, can they do it? Yes. Will they raise fares? You bet they will. And then you'll have people complaining, well, the airfares have gone up. They're up 40 percent or 35 percent compared to where they were last year. Why are they doing this? It's a, it's pretty simple. These airlines are paid to transport you and I from point A to point B. And there is a cost involved. They need to at least make that cost. And then hopefully from their perspective, running a business, they turn a profit. Yeah, it's going to be wild uh, to see what happens here. I, 
feel bad for everybody involved uh, up and down. Flyers, the airlines, the passengers, everybody. Uh, Seth Kaplan, Philippo, thanks. And we'll see where it goes from here, whether Congress does mandate something or not. And that does it for The Exchange today. Thanks so much for tuning in. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Travel is great, but planning for travel can be time-consuming and difficult. That's where One Travel comes in. With One Travel, you'll find everything you need to book the perfect trip. Flights, hotels, cars, transportation, it's all right there. With One Travel, you can book online, via app, or even pick up the phone and talk to a travel advisor ready to help you make your selections. Visit onetravel.com slash music or call 855-437-2154. Plan it, book it, live it. One Travel.